If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 33. As uh, I mentioned, we're in the last series of a three-part series called Reconciled. We're looking at how God can reconcile our relationships with each other, just like he does himself through his son. And we're reading through the story of Jacob and Esau. And if you ever miss a sermon, you can always go on the Church Center app or to um, hcclife.us and catch up on those sermons. Many sermons build one upon the other. This is definitely one of those sermons as we go through this story of Jacob and Esau, uh, verse by verse, part by part. And we've been challenging ourselves to look at the way our sin affects our family. One of the main points that I took away from this passage is that everyone in this family could point to somebody else in this story, point to somebody else and say, they did me wrong, right? I'm the victim. They're the perpetrator. They need to fix it. They need to repent. And they could all deny that they have had a hand in it and deny their part in it and how Satan has worked through them and their sin and point to somebody else. And so we've been challenging ourselves to turn to ourselves and look at ourselves and say, how am I contributing to the sin in my family? How am I contributing to the division in my relationships? And you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm sitting there asking myself that same thing, laying awake in bed at night. Lord, what could I do to follow you more? And I don't know about you as we've been challenging ourselves throughout this sermon series, but I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't think of anything. And so last week when driving home, I asked Sarah on the way home, I said, honey, what could I do? What is it? And she was reluctant to answer because, you know, those conversations always go well. But eventually I dragged something out of her And she told me something I could be doing better. And I thought, well, praise the Lord. He took this in a different direction because she was wrong. (laughs) And so I took that opportunity to once again explain why I do what I do. And I'm so glad that that the closest home that we could really find here was about 30 minutes away. And I'm so glad we have this nice long car ride to have conversations like this. (laughs) What a blessing it is. No, but she, she mentioned something, and, uh, you know, she was very nice. She, she didn't even mention the thing that I think I've done uh, worse than any other thing, and the thing that causes issues in our relationship, and our kids' relationship. And uh, last week, we ended the sermon by looking at this family that is just really, really divided. And we talked about, I talked about the example of how we have this box on our desk in the kitchen where our kids drop all of their broken things, and they're so adorable. They have this faith in us that we can just fix anything that they break. You know, we've got a pretty good track record, but I mean, they have this faith that goes way beyond our abilities, right? And they drop all this stuff in this box, and you look at it, and you're like, I don't even know how I would put that bag, how can I even glue that? How can I get this in a situation? I spend, I spend so much of my time holding something for extended periods while it super glues together, and I spend so much time trying to get that knot out at the bottom of the axle and the yo-yo, and I spend so much time. And our kids just have this faith. They come and drop off their broken things knowing that we're going to fix it, and we can have that exact same faith in God. He is our loving Father. He is good. And we can bring whatever situation we have to him in confidence that we can't fix these things, but he can. And as we turn to him, and as our families turn to him, there's nothing that can't be fixed. If someone is against the gospel, there's actually nothing that you can get through. Right? If someone is against the message of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, There's actually nothing you can get through, and I've met people like that. You go along until something happens, no matter how small, and it is over. And on the flip side, if you have two people who are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's nothing that you can't get through. There's absolutely nothing if you are fully committed. And so as believers, we want to do whatever we can to fully commit to reconciling our relationships and pray and wait for the Lord to move in the other person's life as well. And we're going to look at how God takes this family with incredible division and ends up bringing incredible reconciliation. If I could get the uh, verses up on the screen in the back as well as the front. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 32. And verse 1 of chapter 32 says, Jacob went on his way. And the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place, Muhammad. 
And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight." And so here, Jacob mentions what he's been doing. He's been staying with his uncle Laban. He had to leave his family. His mother tried to outdo God and try to manipulate and bring about God's will before God's timing and without God's plan. And she ended up causing such massive division. She never saw her son again. Her son never saw his father again. His brother wanted to kill him, and he had to leave and flee, which is another bad advice. He should have stayed and fixed it. Instead, he left and fleed to his uncle. And here we have Jacob, who's a man who's going to love God. Deep in his heart, God, before he ever created the world, knows all things. He looked forward and he says, when I create this world, there's going to be a guy named Jacob here. There's going to be a kid named Esau here. They're going to be twins. Jacob's going to love me. Esau is now going to love me. Before God ever created the world, he knew what they would do. And here God knows that Jacob's got a heart for him. And that all of life is a love story between God and his people, God created the world knowing what we do, but he didn't make a decision for us on what we do. He gave that to us. The decision on whether or not we'd love him or not, he gave it up to us. And here the Lord looks forward, knows that Jacob's going to love him, and Esau's not. And yet as we go throughout this story so far, Jacob's been a really bad guy. He's been a really self-serving, selfish, manipulative person. He's done some bad things. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we should not be so spiritually blinded by Satan to know that we are not fully Christ-like yet. Far from it. And that as people who love the Lord, we are still capable of incredible destruction. And Satan is still very capable of working through us to bring division in our families. And so Jacob, largely because of his own sin, had to leave his family because his brother's going to kill him. And he goes and flees and goes and stays with his uncle. And just like Jacob deceived his father to get his blessing and deceived his brother, Jacob goes to his uncle, and the Lord allows him to be deceived. God loves Jacob. He knows that Jacob loves him deep down in his heart somewhere. He's trying to bring that out for Jacob to be reconciled to God. He's got to repent of his sins. He's got to put his faith in the Lord for his salvation, his forgiveness. And so God is going to try to bring him to a place of repentance. He's already brought him incredibly low because of his own sin. And Jacob goes to his brother or his uncle, and he works seven years for one of his uncle's beautiful daughters to marry. And on the wedding night, uncle pulls a fast one, a switcho changeo, gives him the other daughter. Jacob thought he was good at being sneaky. And here he just stepped into the big leagues. You stole your brother's inheritance. I got you to marry somebody you didn't even want to marry. Look at that. Ha! And so Jacob realizes what deception is. And just like he's hurt his family with deception, he realizes how deception hurts him. And the Lord is just a masterful storyteller. And here Jacob's been deceived, and Jacob's heart starts to change. Before Jacob left, we saw that he was unrepentant of his sin. He knew what they were doing. His mother told him, let's go deceive your father. He says, well, what if dad catches on? Not what does the Lord want? Much different question. Jacob knows what they're doing is sin, and his question is, well, what if we get caught rather than maybe we should follow Jesus? And so here God has been working on Jacob's heart. And it says, Jacob went on his way. The angels of God met him. God is working in his life trying to bring him to repentance and salvation. Jacob sees the angels. He says, this is God's camp. He names this thing. He knows he's got to do something in his life. And so what does he do? He starts looking to reconcile with his brother Esau. He sends messengers before him. And he tells those messengers, say this, say to my Lord Esau. That's a much different tune. Last time he saw Esau, he was looking to swindle him out of his inheritance. Now he's having a much different attitude. And he says, I've got a lot of stuff. I've been staying with my uncle. I've got oxen. I've got donkeys. I've got all these things. And I've sent to tell you that I might find favor in your sight. Jacob's looking to reconcile. 
And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. That's a lot of men. That's a lot of people. There's only one reason why you come at somebody with 400 men. And Jacob knows that reason. And so he's scared out of his mind. Verse seven, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And so here, Jacob's looking to reach out to Esau. He finds out that there's 400 men coming and he's greatly distressed. He wants to reconcile, but his brother looks like he's still coming to kill him, which is where his brother wanted to do last time we saw him in the story. And Esau's a difficult person to get along with. Jacob knows his brother. Isaac, his father, knows his son. And Isaac said this about his son. He said, by your sword, you shall live. And that has been true for Esau in his life. As we read through the rest of the scriptures, it's true for his descendants as well. They learn from their father. They're men of violence. They're men of quick temper. They're angry. They're not forgiving people. And here Jacob looks to reconcile and Esau starts coming at him with 400 people. And so what does Jacob do? It says he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And so Jacob says, well, this is the way it's going to be. At least maybe some of us will live. And so he splits his group into two camps. And as you read this, you're expecting a slaughter. And so Jacob Expecting that slaughter, what does he do? Well, he prays. And Jacob said in verse 9, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. I'm afraid he's going to come and kill everybody. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And Jacob goes back to the promise that God gave to him, that God gave to his father Isaac, and God gave to his grandfather Abraham, that God would give them offspring the number of the sand of the sea. And Jacob looks and says, well, God, you've promised this, but it looks like my brother's going to come and kill us all. How does this work? And Jacob prays to the Lord, God, deliver me from this. I don't deserve all the good things you've done. And this doesn't line up with your promise. Lord, help me. And Jacob here is learning to pray out of necessity. What purpose does God have for us when bad things happen? We can see the purpose right here. Jacob will only turn to God in this moment, at this time. It took this to get Jacob to turn to God. Jacob's saying, I'm not worthy of all the deeds you've given him. And the Lord has changed his heart. He knows. I was uh, watching like the 2016, I think it was, World Series. Did the Royals win in 2016? 15? 2015. So I'm, a, I'm from Minnesota. I'm a Twins fan. But, I, you know, as a small, small market team guy, right, whenever anybody pretty much from the AL Central makes it, you know, you start paying attention, uh, whether it's the Indians, the Royals, the Twins, whoever it is, and they cheer for them, right? And so, you know, the Twins lose every year. What we do is we go to New York every year and we play the Yankees and we get to New York and the bright lights and all the pressure and these young guys, usually we got young guys growing from the farm club, right? They've just come up. They got two, three years of experience. Their first playoff series, you know, in New York and we just lose every time. Every time they choke. And so I'm paying attention to this World Series, Kansas City and the New York Mets. I'm watching this World Series and I'm just expecting it because that's what happens to the Twins every time, right? That's what happens to a small market team. You go to New York the bright lights turn on, and it's just over. And the Royals got up two games to one to go back to New York, and I turn on the game because I'm like, well, this is it, right? This is it. This is the moment that, and I'm cheering for him, but I'm like, I'm just expecting it to drop because that's just so what I'm used to. This is the moment that the New York team asserts themselves, crushes the hopes of the small market baseball team and goes back with a championship. I'm watching, and it's, it's playing out pretty much that way. 3-2, I think, bottom of the eighth, bottom of the ninth, something like that. And they get to the middle of the Royals lineup. 
and Hosmer gets up. And I'm just thinking, I just, he's, he's a young man, he's not gonna be able to do it. He's not gonna be able to do it. And he gets up, and unlike every Twins baseball player that's broken my heart over the last 20 years, Hosmer gets a hit. And all of a sudden, this runner's in first and third. And then Moustakis gets up. And I'm like, oh, here it is. This is where New York, New York does it. No, and Moustakis gets a hit. Suddenly, it's tied. And then Prez gets up. And Prez gets a hit. And the winning run comes across. I'm like, that's incredible. That never happens. I never see that happen. That's amazing. And not only do the Royals not lose and go back to 2-2 and then the third game in New York and lose and go down 3-2 and eventually fumble it away, but they stood up, and their whole destiny changed, and my whole expectations changed, and they went up three to one and ended up winning it in five. That was an incredible moment. Imagine the confidence, right? Imagine that's you. I played sports. I played teams that were bigger than ours. I remember one time, uh, I was on the bench for this game for sure, but I remember one time uh, we played uh, a, a future NBA player, this seven-foot guy, renowned in the area, Prisabella, right? Prisabella's coming. And I was like, man, that was a frightening moment, you know? Big time. You got the big time. I was nervous on the bench. Never got into the game. I was like, how do I sit? What do I do? <laughs> Imagine that you're... One of those three guys, right? Getting up in front, facing the New York Mets in New York. What confidence would it take to get up there and actually come through? That's incredible stuff. Now imagine if the guy had no confidence. What if he never practiced? What if he never prepared? All of a sudden he's thrown out there. Just imagine this, right? He never played baseball. He decided to become an accountant instead. And then... They throw this guy out there. Here's Moustakis from, uh, you know, he's in the accounting department at Barnes & Noble. And here he is now to hit the baseball. Good luck. My kids join sports. You know, my kids are old enough to join sports. It's fantastic. It's a ton of fun. I get there. I drop, I drop off my two boys. They go to one field. The other goes to the other. And the boys get there, and they kind of see the other players, and they go start, you know, goof around with each other, you know, they start throwing rocks at each other and throwing sand up in the air, and some of them are spinning around, and other of them, you'll put their glove on their face and go, blah, 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 and start chasing the other kids. And then, you know, somebody sits down in the outfield and starts eating the clovers or whatever. And the coach gets in, and he's like, what are you doing? Everybody line up. You throw to him, you throw to him, you three, you go over to the fence, and you start working on your hitting with the assistant coach and blah, 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 and he gets them all organized. And at church, we come, and that's basically us. What would happen if we actually took it seriously? What if we actually got prepared? What if we took our faith so seriously that we were so prepared that when we faced the hardest moments of our life, we faced them in complete and total confidence rather than in complete and total shambles? What if we took our faith seriously and understood the questions, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? I'm incredibly amazed that so many people are confused with that question. I went to seminary and listened to professor and professor and teacher after teacher stand up and say, well, we don't know why. Well, yes, we do. We do know. And it took me reading the Bible and reading it and reading it because none of these people helped me. Reading it, why does God allow bad things to happen? What if you prepared? What if instead of coming to church with your glove on your face and throwing rocks in the air and eating clovers and not paying attention, what if you prepared? Because God's got a plan for your life and your enemy is coming. I have a, my, my oldest son, when he was 10 months old, he got pneumonia three times in the fall. It was unreal. And each time it's a multi-week recovery and the third time I'm sitting there, I'm holding him as he's crying at night. I'm thinking, why, God, why? And I'm thinking, I've got people in my church who've, who've lost kids. I've got, I've got one family in my church who's about to lose a child. I've got family members who've, I, I, I better take this, I better start figuring this out. This is my time to practice because there's something worse going to happen. Pneumonia is not a big deal in the ultimate scheme of things. What am I doing? What am I doing with my time? What am I doing with my worship? What am I doing with my faith? If I sit here and question in this moment, I mean, it was in my heart. I got it in my head, but I didn't have it in my heart. 
I'm like, I've got to figure this out now. This is my time because something else is coming. And if I don't get it right now, then when it comes, I'm not going to be prepared for it. So many people come to church completely unaware that we're in the greatest battle that could ever be told, the greatest story to ever be told. You're in the battle of good versus evil. And we come to church and we don't care. We don't read the word. We don't pray. We come to church once in a while. We sit down. Their entire church is filled with this. And the pastor gets up and gives a, a sermon that sounds like the word of God with none of its power. And then everybody goes home fine and happy because they came and they can feel like they're saved. And they're sitting there with their glove on their face. They're sitting there spinning around, doing nothing. What are you here for? You need a coach to tell you that you're not doing this right. You've got to start preparing. If you don't know the answers to these questions, you're not doing it right. And you better get in the game. For your own good. Now, if that kid keeps spinning around, this is why church and sports, the church world could probably learn from the sports world in this way. If the kid just continues to defy the coach and doesn't listen and shows up to practice and continues to go around and run around and try to scare the other kids with his glove on his face and play tag and not listen, the coach, you know what he's going to say? I don't think you're cut out for this. Now, I'm going to put it in a much nicer way. I've been here for 10 months. If I haven't inspired you to get into the word of the Lord, if I haven't inspired you to pray with your whole heart to the Lord, if I haven't inspired you to worship the Lord with your whole heart, it's not getting better. I've been here for 10 months. You're going to tune me out as time goes on more than you already have been. And so if that's where you're at, I give you permission to go find a pastor that you'll listen to. I don't care if you've been to this church for 10 months or 30 years. You need a pastor you'll listen to. And I give you the permission and freedom to go find that man. You've got to get your head in the game. Your enemy is coming. And if you're not reading the Bible, if you're not spending time in prayer, you're going to get killed. You're going to get slaughtered out there. I would never send somebody on my team out there to face a pitcher in New York in game five of the World Series. I'm prepared. I would never do that. And I wouldn't do that to you either. Wouldn't it be great to get prepared so you've got such confidence? You know what the purpose of life is. What is the meaning of life? Remember those commercials? The guy sitting on the basketball court, what's the meaning of life? The Book of Mormon comes in the corner of the street. You know, it's in here, not the Book of Mormon. But so many, like, what are we doing? What are you doing coming to church, spinning around in circles in the outfield? Pay attention. Your Jacob is only going to pay attention when it comes down to the darkest moment of his life. How wonderful if Jacob had spent some time beforehand preparing for this moment. Jacob begins to pray out of necessity. It's my hope that you begin to pray now before you need it. And his reality conflicts with the promise. And what is he going to do? What is he going to do? This is so refreshing. The reality conflicts. The reality conflicts with the promise that God's given him. And doesn't yours? Isn't that why we struggle with faith? We know God is good, and yet bad things happen. And you wonder, God, are you good? What does Jacob do? Well, he stays there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servant, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. Now there's words without actions. Here we got actions without words. There's people who will tell you they love you, but they don't take any action. What they have is sentiment. They don't have love. There's people who will say, I'm sorry, but they won't lift a finger to fix what they've done. Those people don't have repentance. Here, Jacob doesn't even say that. He doesn't say that he's repented. Lord, I'm so sorry. I've sinned. I'm so bad. We don't get that part. Instead, he says, I'm going to give back to Esau everything I've taken from him and more. 
my reality conflicts with the promise that God has given me. How many of us, when we get in that situation, because we're not prepared, we turn to God and say, where are you? Where are you? God, are you good? It seems like you failed. Bad things are happening to me, God. It seems like you failed. If you ever are in a situation where you're wondering, if you're wondering where the Lord is, where he's gone, why those bad things happen to you, the problem is never with God. If you're ever in that situation, start the first starting place is God is good. God is good. Satan's got a plan to destroy me, but God has got a plan to save me. God doesn't cause evil things, but God is so good. If I have my faith in him, if I love him, then he'll work all things to my good. That's the first song we sang. You'll work all things, all together for my good. And that requires faith. The reason why it requires faith is so often our reality conflicts with the promise of God. He knows that. That's why he's coming to judge the world. There's a problem here. And as we go through this world, we're going to experience that problem. And we need to have our faith in him. God never stops being good. If we're in a situation that seems bad, it's not that God stopped being good. We don't turn away from God. We turn to God. He's our Savior. That's what he does. That's who he is. Why does God allow bad things to happen? All the time so that we'll love him more. All the time. God allows bad things to happen so that we'll love him more. He didn't cause it. And he's got a plan to fix it. And if we put our faith and trust in him, we'll learn to depend on him and love him more and we'll be delivered by him and we'll learn to love him more. Here, Jacob doesn't start with the idea that, well, God, you're wrong. Instead, he says, maybe there's something that I've done that could have addressed this situation. I know. I stole my brother's inheritance. How many of us do something wrong and because we have an understanding of God's grace for us, We go to God and we say, Lord, forgive me. And because we think it's that easy, then we turn and go, I don't even need to go to them. Look how easy forgiveness is. Look at how free grace is. Grace isn't free. When you sin against somebody else and you need to repent of the Lord, that God, there wasn't free reconciliation between you and the Lord. That came at the most precious and highest cost, the cost of God's own son. If you look at Numbers chapter 5, when you sin against another, you're to make restitution, you're to give it all back, you're to make it up all back, and 20%. If you look at Luke chapter 19, verse 8, the tax collector steals from everybody when he comes to the Lord and he knows he's got to make it right. He gives it all back and then some. That's what restitution looks like. That's what reconciliation looks like. If you're sitting there and you've done something wrong to somebody and you're thinking, well, the Lord forgives me, they'll get over it, they'll need to forgive me, you need to make up for it. You need to go back and make up for that. That is a biblical teaching of repentance. And here Jacob gets it. He just doesn't wait for Esau to get it. Oh, he'll he'll get over that someday. And then I'll be fine. No, he knows that he needs to go make it up. He doesn't look to God and say, you're wrong. He says, maybe there's something that I've done wrong. And God has allowed all of this because he wants Jacob's heart. Jacob's a deceiver. Before Jacob and Esau ever came out, God knew everything that was going to happen and knew that it was perfect. That's why he allowed it. That's why he created this world. He said, everything that's going to happen here, it's going to be exactly the way it needs to happen. Not that things don't happen that are against God's will. Every sin that Esau committed is against God's will. Every sin that Jacob committed is against God's will. But what God wants is people who love him. And as he looks at this situation, he says, it's perfect. The guy who loves me is in the perfect situation to turn to me and love me. I've given this deceiver, I've given him a wild man for a brother. Praise the Lord. Jacob should thank God every day of his life for that conflict in his life. Because it's not Esau confronting him. It's God himself confronting him. Jacob's a deceiver. This guy's going to have to repent of his sins and turn to me. What is that going to take? I'm going to give him a guy who's impossible to work with. Every time this guy deceives his brother, he's going to have to get worried about his brother kicking his butt. I mean, Esau's put the fear of God in Jacob. 
Who else could have done that to this manipulative, deceptive person? He's busted. It's over. End of the line. What's going to happen, Jacob? What are you going to do? Well, he's going to turn to the Lord. And the Lord is going to save him out of his grace and mercy. Jacob and Esau were made for each other. What conflict in your life is made for you? Think about that. What person in your family pushes your buttons? What person is it that pushes your buttons that you can't, oh man, that person really just, oh, they, God gave you that person. Now every sin that they do, that's not God's will, that's Satan's plan. But God is so good, he wants to use it to save you. You might have been let down by a family member. God might allow you to lose a family member. You might have been let down by a pastor. God has got a plan for all of that. God allowed you to be let down by that pastor because he wanted you to stop listening to him. And he wanted you to start turning to him yourself. God lets you lose that family member because he needed to. He's got a plan. He wants your whole heart. Maybe he wants you to stop idolizing your family and putting your family before him. Maybe he wants you to learn and to depend on him and trust him. Maybe he wants you to see his incredible power that he's going to bring in the resurrection. Even when we lose a family member, has got a plan for that. He's only got the power that it takes to bring that person back to life. And we won't have a hard time worshiping him for eternity when we see him do that. God's got a plan. Put your faith and trust in him. It's all so that you'll love him more. Here, Jacob and Esau were made for each other. And God might have brought somebody into your family who's made for you. They challenge you in that area that you're weak. Your patience, your grace, whatever it is. God's got that person there for you. How can you follow God in that? So Jacob... He's got all of these things. He's going to bring them to Esau. He instructs the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you growing? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with a present that goes ahead of me. And after I shall see his face, perhaps he will accept me. If we can go to that slide about the Greek word there. The word appease in the Greek is the word won't come up. We should have prayed harder for that technique. The word appease means repentance. The word appease includes repentance. So here we have Jacob with a plan that he's going to send these to appease him, to repent with him, to make up for what he's done. Perhaps he will accept me. Perhaps he will forgive me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, whatever that is, any river, and he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. So Jacob sees this individual. It's a man, and he wrestles with him till the breaking of the day. Hulk Hogan is my all-time, speaking of wrestlers, whenever I have a chance to speak of wrestling in church, I take that opportunity. Hulk Hogan was my all-time favorite wrestler as a kid. Loved that guy. The guy wrestled forever, decades and decades. He wrestled as a good guy. He wrestled as a bad guy. He did everything that could. He left the WWF to go wrestle somewhere else. In 2002, as an old, older wrestler, right, he decided to come back from one more run in 2002. I said, what are we going to do with this guy? We've already done everything we can think of. You know what they did? They put him under a mask and pretended he wasn't Hulk Hogan. 
It was genius. If you've ever seen Hulk Hogan, you know who Hulk Hogan is the minute you see him. He's gigantic. His muscles are huge. He's got a leathery ancient tan that's been there since the 70s. He's got long blonde hair. He's totally bald on top. He's got a thing. And he comes out in this mask and they'd be like, his name was Mr. America. And they'd be like, you're Hulk Hogan. He's like, no, brother. It was genius. Every story in life is only ripping off the Bible. Here we've got a different masked wrestler dropping leg drops on Jacob. Oh, yeah. He, 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 he takes out his hip socket. Jacob sees this guy. What an interesting scenario. Jacob sees this guy and he's like, it's on. And he gets him to step over to hold face lock. I'm not letting go of this guy. Why? Because the mask didn't work. He knew who it was. And we knew who it was from the scripture. Hosea 12.4 tells it this is an angel. It's a representative of God. In fact, Jacob later on is going to say he knows it's God. He knows he's wrestling with God himself. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you tap. No, I have the same thing basically though. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God. You fought with God. God always wanted a showdown with Jacob. He always wanted this. Jacob's a man who's not been following him. But Jacob, deep down in his heart, he's a man who's going to love God. He's a man who's going to heaven. He's a man who's going to be saved. When you look at his family, the promise of God comes through him, not Esau. Esau and his kids don't make it. The people of God are continued through Jacob. God always wanted this to get a hold of Jacob. He's allowed all of this to get a hold of Jacob in his heart. And you fought with God. Finally. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it they ask my name? And there, there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel did not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And so Jacob sits here and he won't let go until he finds God. And how many of you can say the same? We have so many people who think that God is real. We have so few people who think that God is their Lord. There's so few people who know God as their God. You can come in and out of church. You can read your Bible. You can pray. You can do all of these things and never be able to say, I've wrestled with the Lord and I've found him. Like Jacob said, I've seen God face to face. If you can't say that, if you haven't been able to say that yet, then you have not fought hard enough to find the Lord. In Luke chapter 11 and Luke chapter 18, God tells us the kind of God he is. When we bring our half-hearted effort to him, he says, no, try again. Lord, I would like your blessing. No, that kind of effort doesn't deserve my blessing. As evangelicals, we've bought this lie. We always get on the Catholics for obscuring salvation with works. Well, we have obscured salvation with grace that doesn't exist. We always say, it's not what I do, it's been what's been done for me. Well, yeah, but you need like a 45-minute sermon after that to really understand that you better start doing something, which is seeking the Lord with your whole heart and opening up your heart to submit to him. We have so many people who think they've been saved because they came to church and they checked a box and they told them that they were saved. You're not saved if you checked the box on the card. You weren't saved if you got baptized. You weren't saved if in VBS you told the teacher that you wanted the Lord in your heart. You're saved when you wrestle with God and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're born again and you can say that God is my God. The Lord is my God. That's when we're saved. And here, that's what it took to get Jacob to this place. And if you're here giving half an effort, that's a good start. Keep going. Keep going until you find him. Keep going until you say that I know God. I know him. I have moments of doubt. I have moments of weak faith. I have moments of failure. But I know God. I know him. My life is different because of him. I'm born again. And here Jacob becomes born again to the point that God even gives him a new name. 
He's no longer Steve Austin. He's stone cold. All right, that's enough wrestling. That's all I got. That's fun. It's fun to do that. Thank you. Verse 33, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. Here he comes to kill him. He divides the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with their children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Boy, I didn't catch that when I... Joseph is alive right here. Now, in the Joseph story, we have a different uh, situation of reconciliation. And if you ever miss a sermon, you can go back and listen to that. We did a whole sermon on Joseph. It's awesome. It's called Turning the Tables. Joseph and his brothers reconcile completely. We're going to have a little different situation with Jacob and Esau. Jacob prayed for the Lord to save him, and he plans for the worst. James tells us that if we pray without faith, we're double-minded, and we won't receive what we prayed for. Jacob's not double-minded here. God won't force other people to follow him. We should always pray in faith, but we should know that God will always give other people the opportunity to serve him or not. And so Jacob prays for his deliverance. He's received the blessing of the Lord. He doesn't know what that blessing looks like. The apostles prayed. They received the blessing of the Lord. Sometimes the prison chains broke and they were free, and other times they got beheaded. God was always with them, and he always blessed them. Here Jacob It's not that he lacks faith. He just knows his brother is nuts. And so he prays. He knows he's received the Lord's blessing and he's out to face it. Maybe he dies and becomes a martyr and a witness. Who knows? But he puts the the ones that he loves the most in the very, very back. And he himself went on before them. First, I created this mess. I'll go face it first. Bowing himself to the ground seven times, it's a sign for royalty until he comes near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and took out his sword. No, wait. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And you read this passage and you get the feeling that this is nothing short of a miracle. The Lord, his prayers have answered so much. The Lord has convicted Esau so much in his heart. Nobody else can get Esau before or since to follow him. But God did such an amazing thing here that Esau, in his heart, didn't want to kill his brother anymore, even though that's clearly what he set out to do when they started marching with 400 men. Instead, he's come to reconcile as well. And Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. The servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of the Lord, of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, because I have enough. And thus he urged him, and he took it. I'm sitting there with my 10-month-year-old son, and I'm sitting there thinking, God, why? Why? And I think I better start preparing. And I started thinking, no, just like Jacob, I haven't deserved anything you've given me. I have the complete wrong mindset. You're not causing me to suffer. You have blessed me with incredible blessings. Look at all the blessings that I have. Look at all the blessings that I have. Why are you allowing this? Just think about the things I can learn right now. What is every parent's main fear? They're going to lose their child. Unbelievable that I get to sit here and understand that what God did for me as I hold my kid with pneumonia. I get to understand what God did for me. Praise the Lord. Look at how much you love me. Look what you did for me, Lord. Look at all the blessings I have. You're not bad to me, God. You're incredibly good to me. Here, Jacob changes his mind, his outlook. I don't deserve anything. In fact, God, you've blessed me immensely. And Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail. This is my favorite part of this story. I mean, it's kind of sad, but this is my favorite part. Look at Esau. He's a wild man. You couldn't get along with him before, as we're going to read from the Bible. You couldn't get along with him afterwards. Jacob knows that. What does Esau want? God's done the thing of his heart. But we know that Esau didn't go all the way. He said, let's journey on our way, Jacob, me and you. 
brothers, brothers together. Now, if you want a really happy story, you look at the story of Joseph and his kids. When Jacob finds out that he was deceived by his own children, when they tell him, oh, you know, the one that we sold into slavery, he actually died at the hands of an animal. And then Jacob goes and actually meets him in Egypt and sees him face to face. You know why he didn't turn and kill his other 11 kids? Because he himself remembers, what a deceiver I was when I was younger. I was once a young man. Out to, I remember, I'm willing to forgive you, kids. Look at what God does in his life. That's a happier story. And there, everybody gets along. Everybody's tight at the end of that story. This one, not so much. Esau wants to. Look at this. Let us journey on our way. I'll go ahead of you myself. Let's go, brother. And Jacob said, well, oh, 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 you know, my Lord knows that the, the children are frail and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of my servant, of his servant. Why don't you, you go ahead. It's fine. I'll lead on slowly at the pace of this livestock that are ahead of me and the pace of the children and I, until I come to my Lord and seer. Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? It's fine. Let me find favor in the sight of the Lord. And just, you know, Esau, you just go. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Sarah. And Jacob doesn't go there. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is Succoth. Jacob knows that he's got to have a boundary between him and this guy. They've reconciled. They've made up. They don't hate each other anymore. But Jacob knows that he can never be fully close to this man until he fully finds the Lord. There's something about him. You can't trust him. And so we'll make up, but you got to stay on that side. If you look at there's a river between these two places, you got to stay on that side of the river. And I better stay on this side. Boundaries are hard. And before, in the last few sermons, I've been like, you got to look at your sin to see how your sin is affecting your family so you can do whatever you can to reconcile. And here's the place where I finally give you some relief, right? It takes two. It takes two. We do whatever we can. And we should be open to do whatever the Lord has us. But to fully reconcile, the other person has to do the same. And here Esau is not willing to do that. And so Jacob needs a boundary. When I started this sermon series, I was like, we'll do it in three, it could have been 20 because we could talk about this for the rest of the year. How do we draw boundaries with those of those in our life? We want to reconcile, but they won't love us. They won't treat us the way that God would treat us. They won't stop doing this one thing, which is damaging, which is sinful, which hurts me, which hurts my kids, whatever it is. How do we do that? It's a very difficult place. In this life, you'll have to draw boundaries. If they were both headed towards God, Jacob and Esau would just keep getting closer and closer together. But Esau is more headed like that. And so they'll never quite get there. There's always going to be a boundary between Jacob and his brother. And that's not easy to live with. It's not easy to live with. And as people of God, how do we live with that? How do we sit there and maintain that tension between somebody who continues to reach out, like God does for us in the Incarnation, continues to be open to forgive, continues to be open to forgive and, and restore, and yet has this issue where this person will not love us the way God meant for them to love us. It's a very difficult thing. It's not full reconciliation. But the one thing that we can learn from Jacob and Esau is that in this life, like Jesus says in the book of uh, Mark, he says, I've come not to bring peace but a sword, to divide families, divide mother from brother and father from sister and whatever. Like, that's what Jesus ends up doing. And I've got that in my family. I'm sure you've got that in yours. And on our end, we always sit there and ask, Lord, what would you have me do so that we can reconcile? But we do have to put up boundaries. I'm dealing with that in my family. I'm sure you're dealing with that in yours. But what we can learn is that even though we need to have boundaries, we got to celebrate the wins. Look at what God has done. This is fantastic. God has brought them to a place where Jacob can sleep well at night. I've done everything I can to restore this relationship. I know that my brother knows I love him. I know that my brother knows I'm willing to do anything for him. What a blessing to be able to sleep at night. Jacob has reconciled with his brother in a significant and important way. 
In this world, there'll never be perfect relationships because there's always sin. But the Lord has done something amazing in this family's life, and he can do something amazing in yours too. You know, I was thinking about the, the greatest stories of reconciliation. You know, the stories where, where like a killer reconciles with his dead families, his dead victim's family. You know those ones? I looked up one. Billy Neal Moore killed somebody. He was in jail awaiting the trial in which he would be sentenced to death. A minister shared with him the good news that Jesus loved him and wanted to forgive his sins. Moore learned that no one is beyond redemption. From prison, he wrote his victim's family and asked their forgiveness. Astoundingly, they immediately wrote back to say that they were also Christians and that they forgave him. And then the family decided to petition the Georgia Parole Board to commute Moore's death sentence. In 1991, Moore was paroled from prison, transformed by the grace of God and his victim's family members. When I was released, they embraced me like a brother, Moore said, of Stapleton's family. He has been preaching the gospel of forgiveness to school children and church groups ever since. That is amazing reconciliation. And you know what I think is a better story of reconciliation? The story of Jacob and Esau. I think for many people, it would be easier to reconcile with their family's killer than to reconcile with the family themselves. Oh, man, Esau, I hate Jacob so bad. What, somebody killed Jacob? Oh, yeah, I let that guy out of prison. Don't worry, man. We forgive you. Sometimes I look at families and I think it'd be easier for the people to reconcile with their family's killer than the family themselves. You look at families. You have two brothers who won't talk to each other. Two twins who won't talk to each other. You have fathers who hate their kids, kids who hate their parents. And the stubbornness that sets in over generations is so satanic. Forgiveness is godly. And holding a grudge is so demonic. And if you're sitting there, you don't want that kind of satanic influence in your life. Jacob didn't want it in his. Lord, I'll do anything to reconcile. Give him all the stuff that I took and more. Fine. Whatever you want, Lord. Now that's an absolute miracle. That is a miracle in the heart of Jacob and in the heart of Esau. If God can do that in the family of this, if, in the heart of uh, the family of this killer, if God can do that in the heart of Jacob and Esau, imagine what he can do in your family. And don't give up. Pray in confidence. Pray that the Lord will fix your family. Be willing to do whatever it is he asks you. And let's pray.